0: Hello and welcome to Switzer TV Property. I'm Peter Switzer and with the economy getting the good news that only three million, not six million workers needed the JobKeeper payment and the stock market now surging out of bear market territory, we talked to one of Australia's biggest developers, Tim Gurner, and we asked him how he became one of Australia's biggest developers, and we asked him what he's seeing in the property sector right now. This guy sells a lot of apartments, so his view on where the market is going, the property market is a really insightful one. And then property doomsday doctor, Steve Keen, has a surprise view on where he thinks house prices are going. So I won't keep you waiting anymore. Let's cross to my interview with Steve Keen. Well, joining me on the program is a mate of mine who's quite renowned for being uncontroversial. His name, of course, is Professor Steve Keen. And his latest suggestion, which uh, drew attention uh, in the Daily Mail uh, publication, uh, where he said that he he wants the Australian government to give everybody $100,000 with conditions. Uh, I couldn't help but uh, pursue him. And I thought he'd be in Amsterdam, but now he resides in Thailand in a place called Trang. And once again, I'm not surprised that my old mate, Steve King could be doing that. <laughs> Steve, great to see you.
1: Good to see you too, mate.
0: All right, so we, we'll talk about why you're in Thailand later. Yeah, yeah sure. Yeah, the, you've always been controversial when it comes to economic matters. Um, and sometimes mm-hmm. you've been absolutely right. Sometimes you haven't always been right. But when you're making big calls, it can happen. But this is an interesting one. You're suggesting that the government should find $100,000, is that right, for every individual, adult or household or what? What, what are you trying to say? And why?
1: What, what I'm looking at is the level of household debt in Australia. And if you actually look at how much we owe, uh, it works out to a $100,000 per household, just under a 100000 bucks per, per person, per person, not per household. And that household debt, has basically done only one thing, and you can guess what it's done. It's driven up Australian house prices. It's done bugger all otherwise. Uh, it's been money. In my if I can use French in your program, can I? Yes. It's, yes been money just, okay. It's money pissed up against a wall. Okay. You're paying. You're paying for expensive, uh, expensive property. It's all been financed by debt. Um, that has been a, that's what caused the financial crisis back in 2008. It's what caused the bubble beforehand as well? The fact that Australia's debts continue increasing after the crisis is why it looks like it's been a healthy economy. Uh, but now that we have the coronavirus, uh, there is one reason I think Australia might actually do well out of this, by the way, and Australian house prices too. But we are facing a huge financial crunch. It's mainly because we're carrying this ridiculous level of household debt. Uh, what we need to do is get rid of bank created money and replace it with government created money and we could do it by the stroke of a few pens.
0: So how, how many billions are we required to do this to?
1: Uh, I'll give you the exact figure in a moment. Uh, and the answer is about, uh, let's see, hang on a second. 2.3, uh, 2.3 billion.
0: 2.3 billion will give it every one of us a hundred thousand dollars. And it would
1: all be done on paper. Okay. Yeah. It's it, it's a paper transaction because there'd be government creating money by doing what is actually now happening in England. And I don't know how many people are aware of this, but the English Treasury is being financed directly by the Bank of England. So they're putting out all this money, like something in the order of 300 billion pounds they're creating um, to finance their way through the coronavirus. And they're simply saying, here's 300 billion pounds worth of, uh, of bonds. Um, for the, the Treasury prints them up on their printer. And the bank the banker said, that's good. We'll take them off your books. And here's 300 million billion pounds we're going to put in your account for you to spend on the public. It's just a paper transaction. What will
0: the people be instructed to do with that $100,000?
1: What I'd be doing is, is twofold. First of all, it'd go on a per capita basis. You, you would get as much as me, not a cent more, not a cent less. Ditto with Rupert Murdoch, Have you still call himself an Australian. Uh, everybody gets exactly the same amount of money. Those who have debt, it's used to write off their debt, reduce their debt level. Those that don't get debt would get a cash injection that I would pre- preferably restrict to being used to buy newly issued corporate shares, where those corporate shares would have to be used to pay down corporate debt. And the whole idea is to reduce the debt burden by roughly 100% of GDP, because we currently owe, as as households and corporations in Australia, roughly 200% of GDP is is the private sector debt level, about six times the government debt level everybody else worries about.
0: Because I know you are a fitness fanatic, I know, I don't have to say to you, what have you been smoking, Steve? Because I know you're not smoking, and it's always very dangerous for Australians to have anything to do with drugs in an Asian country, and you're not stupid. But people watching this would be saying, has Steve really lost his marbles? This seems like too way out an idea for any government to really seriously consider. How would you you respond?
1: I would say it is too way out an idea for any government to consider. Okay, which is why I haven't bothered pushing it, even though I put it forward about 10 years ago as a way of getting out of the financial crisis, because what we've allowed to happen is we've talked about what you've been smoking. Mate, you've been smoking the weed on this front. You've been sitting back watching house prices rise and not even worrying or even asking what's the level of household debt that's driving it. Now, I've been saying, for God's sake, put the put put the the, the smoking utensils aside, take off the rose-colored glasses and look at the level of household debt. And that's what's been driving the whole damn system. So I'm saying we've been okay. behaving in a stoned fashion. I want to get us unstoned yeah. and get back to government money rather than go bank money and go okay.
0: bank money. I'm starting to think of Freddie, Fred Flintstone at the moment, uh, Steve. But uh, the thing that gets me on this argument is, you say that the money has purely driven prices, but a lot of houses have been bought, uh, built sorry. And that has a multiplier effect, that has employment. You know, I've recently interviewed um, Tim Gurner, the the significant developer. I guess he's like the young Harry Triggerboff, And he was saying because of the coronavirus, you know, a couple of thousand people won't be employed until we get back developing again. So it's not just a price, a household debt thing generating prices, Steve. There is economic growth that happens with it as well.
1: Yeah, there have been some houses built as well. I won't deny that, obviously. Some of them have even stayed up for more than a month without cracking. Um <laughs> Uh, But I would rather be building factories and machinery technology than building houses and making the prices rise. And if you take a look at the numbers, and you know, I'm a numbers man. And of course, I'm going to show you some numbers in a while. Uh, We do a bit of screen sharing here. Uh, Most of that increase in money has simply made prices more houses, more expensive. And one fascinating thing about being in Trang now, being in in Asia, is that you go for a meal here. It's dirt cheap. Why is it dirt cheap? partly because people are paying trivial amounts of money to buy houses or to rent them. We're mainly keeping our Rontier class aside. We're making it impossible to build manufacturing. And after the coronavirus, we've got to rebuild Australian manufacturing to have any hope on the planet whatsoever.
0: Steve, um, you, you, you make the point that you know, Australia is lined up for a significant financial crunch because of the coronavirus. Talk us through that.
1: Okay. Actually, I can probably show you better with American data on this, front, but the globe is facing it. And this is okay. because Australia is not unique in having a ridiculously high level of private debt. It's a global phenomenon. And what's actually happening now is because uh, there's such an unusual crisis. This is a crisis, obviously, I did not predict. OK, uh, and it's a crisis which comes at the consumer side of the economy rather than the investor side. If you think about a normal financial crisis, it's too much money going in some gambling area like American housing or whatever else. The whole thing falls over. People start losing money. The investment sector collapses, which is about 30 percent of GDP and drags the consumer section down. Yeah. This time around, workers have been told they can't go to work. That's 70 percent. So it's much, much bigger. And what you're finding, and this is, the, I can show you some American data on this front. I'll just get the data ready before I, I swap screens here. But this, this is showing what's happening right now in the level of corporate debt in America. This is with a very fascinating database called the, um, the, the St. Louis FRED database. So give me a sec to share the screen here. This is from the, um, uh, the, the FRED database. This is the level of commercial and industrial loans in the United States. You can see there's been a rising trend. This is back in 75, came down during the financial crisis, about 1.2 trillion. Here it's about 2.4 trillion before the crisis began. And that's in the last four weeks. Okay, now what you've got is pretty close to a trillion dollar increase in commercial debt. Why? Not because corporations are investing far from it. Their cash flow has dried up and they're basically running up the overdraft. So when the, when we get to the other side of it, there's going to be a massive increase in debt for the private sector. And it's quite possible they could go bust in trying to pay those levels of debt back.
0: Any of the extension of credit from the Federal Reserve?
1: Uh, the Fed's doing an enormous amount as well. Um, but the Fed is what the Fed is really doing is deferring debts. It's saying to households, you don't have to pay the debt now. You can pay it later. But what happens in the meantime, of course, is the principal remains there and the interest you haven't paid gets stacked onto the principal. And what you've got, therefore, is people are going to go through a bit of a debt-paying holiday for a while now, wherever this has been done. And I'm glad that it has been done. Um, But when it comes to the other end, bang, your debt's higher. If they compound the interest you haven't paid in the media, that's higher as well. We could hit a really serious financial shock out of this. And if we don't... Yeah, we've go. got to find some of stopping it.
0: So, yeah. Steve, as you know, there has been a lot of money thrown at the solution to all of this. Has the magnitude of the stimulus and the central bank extension of credit
1: um, surprised you? Um, it has in the sense that, you know, every time I'm, when I'm arguing for, I'm arguing for ways of, you know, curing far past mistakes we've made. And I get told this can't be done. That's impossible. This can't be done. And bang, a crisis happens and it's done overnight. So like, I've been arguing for a universal basic income to some extent to, um, to give people cash flows that so they can pay their their costs during a during a crisis like this, and bang, it's happened. The British government's doing it. The Americans have done it to some extent. Australia's done a better job on the front, and New Zealand better still. So all this stuff, which has been you know impossible, has suddenly become possible instantly. And it's it's been said that it can't be done. No, it isn't. It can't. It's we don't have the will to do it until a crisis like this hits.
0: Um, as you know, uh, right around the world, they they're trying to go back to work. The fingers are crossed that there won't be a serious second wave infection. Uh, and, and anyone who thinks mm-hmm. he knows exactly what's going to happen is, is, uh, is, is guessing. Um, um, yeah, that's definitely yeah, smoking yeah. something. So we don't, yeah. know what's going to, we, we don't know what's going to happen. And as, as you, you would expect, I'm hoping for the optimistic. I don't know what you're hoping for. Mm. But I'm hoping from the optimistic, from, from this point of view, that like you I know, an enormous amount of money has been thrown at this and if we, if we do get back mm-hmm. to work quicker than expected, and there isn't a, a serious second wave shock, therefore, all that money in the system could also lead to a lot of economic growth. What's your response to that?
1: Uh, it's not enough. Okay? It, it, even, the amount of, even the money's been done, and I'm glad it has been done, it hasn't been sufficient. So people have been getting like 80% of their wages being paid out of some of these schemes. Uh, the Americans, I think, are limited to 1200 bucks for a, a, a very low limit of time. People are going to come out of this with less cash than they went in, while they've still got the same financial commitments when you get back to work again. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I don't think enough has been done. And the thing is, it is just a paper transaction. This is all the government putting one number on one side of a balance sheet, another over there. It's all accounting. It isn't a case we've got to get the money from somewhere else. And that belief, we have to. That's that's the main danger we face, I think, we're going forward, thinking that we can't do it. We can.
0: What you'd be happy to know is that uh, after this interview, I'm inter- interviewing the Treasurer, Josh Frydenberg. So I'll just see if he thinks it's as easy as you think it is. Um, no, he wouldn't
1: know what he's talking about. He's a politician. Oh, he wasn't. Uh, he no, was, no, they he don't. was a I'm lawyer sorry. and
0: investment banker, so we'll give him some credit, mate. Uh, so,
1: i am a bit not understanding macroeconomics, and that's where all the half these hassles come from.
0: Okay, now, the,
1: the question a lot
0: of people would be asking why is Steve in Thailand anyway?
1: Okay, uh, the reason being I had to choose the four countries I could have stayed in Australia, obviously, which I was back in March visiting my mother, I think you're aware, we, yep. we caught up. Um, UK, the Netherlands, where I own a flat. And my girlfriend is 25 years in Europe, but she was born in Thailand. And I was looking at the numbers, and an absolutely disastrous performance in the UK. Netherlands suddenly went pear-shaped as well. Um, Australia was doing okay, but my it's, we're not actually married, so I couldn't bring my girlfriend down here without uh, running into visa issues. Thailand was 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 looked perfect uh, because I could. I thought if we get here soon enough, they'll close the borders. And they, they won't be making tourists leave. Well that's actually what's happened. Mm. And um, and Thailand started off as number two after China in terms of the number of cases, ranking a country that is now about number sixty. Mm. And the number of the number of new cases in the UK every day until just recently has been exceeding the total number of cases in Thailand. Only 30,000 and th- 3,028 cases in a population of 60 million. So it's done a better job in controlling the virus than the Australia or New Zealand have done.
0: Shout for skin cancer because you aren't built for um, that wonderful weather in Thailand. But I've got to ask you the one last question, Steve. What happens to Australian house prices as a consequence of the coronavirus?
1: Okay, that's one fascinating thing. I would normally have said they're going to get trashed, and certainly on the, on the debt side of things, that's highly likely. There will be a, uh, you know inability to cover the mortgages and so on. However, one thing which has happened with the coronavirus is that the countries that have succeeded in suppressing it are forming a very interesting patchwork across the globe. Australia is one, and China is the, one of the others. Now, one of the ones that hasn't controlled the virus is, is uh, Canada. Canada. And so, if you imagine the main two main destinations of Chinese buying of overseas housing has been Vancouver and Sydney. Mm. Now, no Chinese in their right mind is going to be buying a place in Vancouver. They may well be selling up there, given the fact that they don't think they can go back there anymore because it's virus affected. Uh, that could double or treble the foreign buying pressure for Sydney and you know, the, this Australian city. So ironically, I think Australia might do well in house prices, but it shouldn't. It should try to get the damn things down and build a manufacturing sector, right. which okay. it lacks, lacks.
0: Steve Keen is predicting higher house prices in Australia. Go figure That'll that throw out. will you, won't it?
1: <laughs> Thanks for joining us on the program, Steve. Welcome, Matt. Good to be here. Good to chat to you.
0: Same here, mate. Well, all of us Australians who own properties, um, or a property, uh, could be a little bit toey at the moment with the implications of coronavirus, but a guy who owns a lot of property, and that's his business, is Tim Gurner of Gurner TM. How are you, mate? Good, Peter. How are you? Very good. Now, is that the name of the business? Everywhere I go in Melbourne, I see Gurner TM. (laughs) It's actually a funny one. I don't know if I've told you in the past, but I had... um... We had this branding
2: session, I said to the branders, whatever you do, don't put my name in it. And they presented Gurner, I'm like, I told you not to put the name in it. And they said, give us another crack. And they put, came back and put the TM. And I thought, maybe it actually looks like a brand. Maybe we can run with it. So that's where
0: that's where the TM <laughs> came from. But it, it does stand out. And it actually is memorable, uh, the fact that you've done that. I'm, I'm toying with Switzer TM myself now as a consequence. <laughs> <laughs> oh.
2: I'll try to try, charge you some trademark. <laughs> now,
0: mate, look, I know who you are, but the people watching this may well have, like me seen the signs around Melbourne and Brisbane. You haven't built in Sydney, have you? We've got a site in Sydney. We haven't been there yet. I
2: um back about five years ago, I came up and had a look around and I thought it was way too expensive, and I was wrong. it ended up being three or four times more expensive two years later. So we've got a site up there, we will do, um, and we'd like to come up there subject to what happens in the market in the next little bit.
0: Yeah, OK, so therefore, the, the first question is a really relevant one. Who is Tim Gurner? Like, where did you come from? Like, you don't look as old as Harry Triggerboff, but, but Harry was once young. I know that I was young when he was, yeah. I guess, middle aged. So he would have been young. Um, so wh- where did you come from, Tim? How did you end up in development?
2: Yeah, it's a good question. So not <clears throat> it's obviously not in my family. So my mum was uh, CEO of Berry Street Child Welfare for 30 years. Um, so she, I'm the capitalist of the family and she's the non-for-profit <laughs> my uh, dad was an engineer structural engineer and landscape um, design which he loved uh, my dad passed away when I was 18 um, my uh, actually 19 but when I just started my first business my uncle was in property he had a, a lot to do with property trusts um, but never actually really property development as such so I, uh, I was lining up, I finished school at Kerry Grammar and I was lining up to go to university and I wanted to be an osteopath. I don't know if I told you that
0: before, Peter, but yeah. I- uh, You look like an osteopath. You, know, you, you. have that, that trendy new age. You know, I can fix your body type of look about you, but go on. See, maybe I'll miss my
2: calling. And <laughs> I, uh, I actually enrolled with it at Melbourne Uni and then um, my mum pulled me aside one day and said, look, I'm not so sure you're made to sit in a room and deal with people one-on-one. Your concentration's about one minute. Um, and I think you should look at something else. So she convinced me to go to Melbourne Uni. I lived at Queen's College and studied business there, which is, which is a great thing. I, I'm an incredibly terrible student. Um, I think I went to probably three lectures in that whole time. We were having way too much fun at college, um, misbehaving. So wasn't a good student, but uh, I always wanted to get into business. And halfway through that, I went from full-time to part-time and started work with a guy called Tony Pride, um, which was Wilson Pride Real Estate. They were doing... A lot of sales at the time, but Tony was doing some private development on the side, and I started getting into that. And you know, I'd always loved property. I remember when I was only 12 years old, Mum and Dad were redoing the garden, and I uh, faked a sickie for about a month straight so I could sit there and watch the bulldozers move the garden around and the soil and everything. And I've just always loved the creation and the change and all the design elements, which obviously comes from my old, my dad. And you know, just creating things has always been my big thing. So. It was great with tony we had an amazing relationship and he's been a really big mentor for me over the years he sort of taught me because he was in sales as well you know how you really work out what people need and what they want and then by knowing that you can then create the product for them so that was an amazing period for me um i then decided i didn't really want a boss i wasn't very good at being told what to do or listening so I, um, you sound like a
0: very troublesome human being. Yeah. You didn't follow the, the course that you wanted to do. You didn't turn up to university lectures. You weren't a good student. <laughs> you, you, you couldn't take, a, just, a, a, take orders, but you still turn it okay. I like you, but still, go on. Uh, I think the
2: concentration, I think, was my biggest problem. I, uh, I always wanted to be doing different things the whole time. And so I started a gym, actually. So when I was with Tony, I saw this opportunity in Elwood, and I uh, started a gym called My Wellbeing, which was mainly focused on personal training. And that actually came out of a um, story when I was with, I was living with this girl in Brighton. Um, I wasn't together with her, but she was this crazy hippie. And she was an amazing girl. And I was coming home like every young kid does, complaining about work. I was working too hard, not getting paid enough. And she just said, well, I don't understand it. What, do what do you love to do? And I said, oh, I love to train. I love the gym um, and I want my own business. She said, oh, that's pretty simple. You just got to start a gym. Mm. And I said, oh, well, I don't think you can just start a gym. And she's like, well, why not? Other people have. And within a month, I'd signed on to this gym premise in Elwood. I then found out that you had to have a gym license, which I didn't realize. So I had to do that at night to, to study that. Then I had council turn up and said, you know, you can't put a gym here. It's a sh- you got a shop permit. And I said, oh, what's a what's a permit? Um, yeah, and I had to work out what that meant. And it all just slowly came together. And within about three or four months, we opened. And yeah, it was an amazing time. I was sort of, I was getting up at, you know, five o'clock training people from six to nine, doing paperwork and marketing from nine till five, and then training people five till nine at night, six days a week. So it was, it was pretty brutal, full on. Mm. I learned more in that first six months than I would have learned at three years at uni, without any doubt. Um, I built that business up um, pretty quickly in about two years, but it was, it was a pretty hard run because I, a month after I started the business, I took, I took a loan for 150 grand from National Australia Bank. I had no money, I had no security. This is back in the day when they used to give loans to businesses without having, you know, direct hard assets as well. Back in the day, a long time ago. I mean, my dad passed away four weeks into. We literally opened the gym four weeks later. My dad died of cancer, and it was an incredibly hard time because we lost my dad and then three grandparents over the next three months. And it was sure. a, it was a very, I was very very close with my dad, and it was a difficult time because I would had this big loan. The business hasn't even started. I was only four weeks into it. And you know, we've got interest clicking and rents clicking and I don't really know what I'm doing as well, you've got to remember. And um, so I had to sort of make a call, You know, do you let it all go or do you get back in there and have a real crack? And I obviously decided that I need to get in there and have a real crack. So the, that was by far the best thing I've ever done because it was just me, I was 100% independent because obviously my mum and my sister were going through a pretty tough time mm. as well. So it was all me by myself and I had to make it work. and the work ethic that I developed through that is definitely why I am here today because there was no way anything was going to stop me from succeeding. I was just going to keep pushing and pushing and pushing until we made a success of it. And that's exactly what we did. And sort of 18 months later, I there was a guy who I knew always wanted the space and I approached him and said, I've got to develop business now. It's ready to go. Why don't you buy it from me? And within a couple of months, I sold it to him. And I did, it's not like we made a, huge fortune out of it at all but we paid out the bank and made a little bit of money Um, and then I was able to get back into what I really wanted to do which was property and after that I actually started with a group FKP which is you'd remember as a very large public company at that time I started there after nine months I decided that getting a $300 ad approved the fact that I had to go through 15 lines of approval that that was not an environment I wanted to be in Um, public companies definitely not suited to my mentality and I approached this crazy guy called Maurice Schwartz, who you know well, Peter, He's he was a classic, you know, crazy creative developer, um, the reason why I liked him and what he was doing is I'd, I'd heard very good things about his ethics and his morals and he was doing a project called 401 St Kilda Road at the time and this was when everyone was doing, you know, two ninety nine plus the cheapest product physically possible, just get it in as cheap as possible and, I remember Maury had this huge banner for 401 St Kilda road called worth every million. And I remember looking at it, thinking an apartment, how's the developer going out there saying worth every million, you've got to be pretty, pretty ballsy. And I called him up and said, look, I reckon you're amazing. Can we catch up for a coffee? And I caught up for a coffee with him. He wasn't really employing anyone. He was really a one man band with a couple of people helping him and met him. And then the next day I started with him and it was just an incredible journey. He's He's been a, you know, him and Tony also have been real father figures and mentors to me as well. I've been very fortunate. I've had some amazing people in my career that have really helped me through tough times.
0: Do you think it was um, a part of your success story that you actually did target someone like um, Shorts and say, can I talk to you? Will you give me a chance? Because a lot of people hold themselves back and they never really open the door that will either give them success or or close the door on the possibility?
2: Oh, absolutely. If I hadn't made that call, I wouldn't be here. There's no way. I wouldn't have been able to start my own business. I wouldn't have all the things I have in my life and my wife and my family without Morrie. There's no doubt. he's he. Not only did he give me an opportunity to come and grow, Morrie was an amazing guy because of the day I started, he came and gave me a folder and said, here you go, here's 401 St Kilda Road, the most complex high-end building that had been in, done in Melbourne. I'd never done it before. And I remember I got the file and I opened the file and I'm like, oh my God, I have absolutely no idea what I'm doing. Like I mm-hmm. literally had no clue what I was doing. I obviously pretended to him, I had every idea what I was doing. Um, and I had to sort of, do, you know, work it out myself. And I got, you know, people say you got thrown in the deep and I got thrown in the ocean. Um, and it was the best thing that could have ever happened for me because I had to survive myself. And, you know, within six months time, I actually had a, a small percentage of that business. And within a couple of years, I had 30% of that business pan-urban. Mm-hmm. Um, and for me, that period, you know, Mori is just the most amazing creative mind and he gave me the ability to see outside the box.
0: Yeah.
2: Now, what was the first development that you did by yourself? Uh, 1810 Melbourne Road, it was. It was 15 townhouses. I could still draw you the four plans today. It had this crazy green mosaic facade. Um, that was the first one I did by myself.
0: Yeah, and over the years, You've developed something that is quite distinctive, so people know it's a Gurner-type product. What is it that you think differentiates you from your rivals, and where did that competitive difference or advantage—I'm sure you call advantage—and given your success, it certainly has been an advantage. But what? Where did it come from, and what is it? I think it's a love of design.
2: To be honest, I mean, I think. In our industry like any business, any business is incredibly brutal whether you're selling coffees or selling apartments and if you don't love what you do then I I think you should get out of it straight away. I mean whenever people ask me about getting into business I say well you want to earn three to four times what you could in a wage and you'd want to love it because it's going to be terrible most of the time and it's going to be a really hard test and for me design is everything for me. I I absolutely love creating things. I love brands. Brands are a big thing for me. Um, We've taken a lot of inspiration from all those incredible fashion brands that do it so well around the world. And so for us, it's every single project. We look at how can we create point of difference. So, and number one thing in the office, every single time we go to launch is okay, we did really well at Hawkesburn, but forget about that. How do we do it better and more different? So we go to St. Moritz and everyone says, Oh, you won't be able to do it better than Hawksburn. St. Moritz, we totally recreate a whole new world and we had more success there than we could have ever had. And it's not always just about high end. It's about, being appropriate to its location too. So when we're in Collingwood, it's very much Meat Packers, New York. And then when we're in St Kilda on the beach, it's more Miami. I take a lot of inspiration from hotels and service offering in hotels and just trying to create the ultimate lifestyle. That's what it is. I guess we try to position the brand as a lifestyle residential product rather than just an apartment in a location.
0: So Let's just quickly concentrate on St Moritz for people who, uh, aren't in melbourne it's the old Novotel hotel at st kilda um you're going to are you knocking the whole thing down and starting from scratch or are you you're using parts of the existing hotel uh, and then tell us what the the offering is going to be you've sold everything there already haven't you
2: yeah so st Moritz was obviously the position the place of the old st Moritz ice rink which was an incredibly important melbourne icon unfortunately it burnt down back in the 80s and then novatel which was a pretty hideous building was built in in the ni- early 1990s um it was a building that definitely the locals did not like so they were very happy for us to knock it over so the building is knocked over it is we're down down to the bottom of the basement so massive three level basement across a 7,000 square meter site um and now we're coming back up we actually just poured the bottom level of basement uh yesterday so very exciting project 132 apartments uh, very large apartments all downsizer big own occupier product. We averaged about $4.5 million. Um, so there's $500 million worth of revenue across 130 apartments. And we've got some very, very large, very amazing apartments throughout the project. And you know, we average size of about 180 square meters for an apartment, which is a very, very large home.
0: And what was the most expensive um, apartment in the complex?
2: Uh, we don't talk about that. But oh,
0: come there's, on.
2: There's a penthouse with a price of 30 million that's, that's not available for sale. Yeah, but okay. To be honest, everyone talks about that one a lot.
0: Yeah, a lot it's of, a newsworthy lot of, and we're in news.
2: Yeah, I think you'll see, Peter, that when it, when it gets revol- resolved at the end and finished, I think you'll see there's some pretty big names and pretty amazing apartments and accomplishments. Yeah. yeah, I'm sure. It's, I've it's, seen your
0: stuff. It's yeah. certainly um, high-end and you, you do show appreciation for design. What's the scariest moment you had? Because when you you do these projects, we're talking many millions of dollars, hundreds of millions of dollars. And you clearly have to be supported yeah. by banks um, because, as you pointed out, you know, no one left you a billion dollars. So what's been the scariest moments for you as a developer, Tim?
2: Yeah, it's interesting. My scariest debt moment was actually that first $150,000 I had for the business, for the gym, because that was totally unsecured. I didn't know what I was doing. And at the time, I thought it was okay when I took it until I realized that I had to pay it back. Mm. just sort of I was pretty young and pretty dumb at the time and that was pretty scary but I think Brisbane was probably the biggest I mean we went up to Brisbane into a different state Um, we went to a and bought a very very large site there and we proposed to do three 30 story towers 992 apartments plus a hotel and retail that is big for anyone that's big Mm. for Barry and anyone in, in the world really and I remember we had ANZ there and I was 31 at the time and I was trying to raise I think we were 300 million for the first two towers from ANZ and we're about 60 million cash we were trying to raise at the time. And I remember that we had the whole credit team of ANZ, 30 of them standing there. And this one lady said to me, so, Tim, you know, what makes you think you can deliver this when no one else has ever? I'm like, oh, it's a, a very good question. And I started to, you know, explain what we were doing. And then I think her question really made me realise, geez, this is, a, this is a big project. You know, mm. it's a big, complex thing out of our hometown um, and that project ended up being incredibly complex and incredibly difficult and you know 330 story towers it was over six years so we went through different cycles in brisbane as well which is something that we'll probably try never to do again i think that was our biggest lesson that you know completing a building in a similar market cycle is what you want to be doing you don't want to be starting six years later as you know anything can be happening and yeah. The Brisbane market when we went up there was at the bottom, it got to the top and it got back down to the bottom within about 18 months, 24 months. So that was a huge test for us up there. And I remember one distinct moment, we raised money through uh, Thackerel which is a Singapore listed entity, um, $46 million cash to start the project. And we did the deal and I was sitting there rerunning the numbers and I was doing the numbers myself on my desk and I pressed the number to get to the final result of feasibility and it was negative. Uh, which was not really what it's meant to be. And I walked outside and I threw up in the garden bush uh, next door because I had so much anxiety and so much stress about something I thought was resolved. um, And it was a very different position. Luckily, we spent the next few weeks getting it back to where it needed to be. But I remember that very, very distinctly. Uh,
0: The coronavirus challenge and the the idea that a government like all governments of the world, would close down and send people home and not be able to go to work and everything's changed. That, that would be, would have been something you could never have contemplated in all your risk management for the projects that you've got on the boil right now. Yeah. I mean, we, we always,
2: I'm, I'm pretty risk adverse. I come from a family of not major risk takers. And you know, we try to line up risk very carefully and we expect to have cycles where property prices drop significantly. and We expect to have settlement issues and we expect to not be able to get funding and have issues the whole time. I mean, my job is virtually just putting out fires the entire time. I am, My wife, if you asked her, she'd say my best skill set is um, problem solving. That is what I do day in, day out. I don't know how you problem solve a global coronavirus, um, which has had much more of a drastic effect than I think anyone could have ever imagined eight weeks ago. And unfortunately, I think it's still got a long way to run yet.
0: Experiencing supply problems, because if you're high-end, you're not getting everything made in this country. Some stuff has to be coming from overseas. Is that causing a, a delay and a problem for your developments?
2: Yeah, look, we, we were very fortunate. I just finished two big buildings in Melbourne, so glass and everything that we needed was here. Um, and St. Ruth's were at the early stages and Victoria and Vine as well were at the early stage. So we were just very fortunate. We were finishing jobs and starting them. but you know, stone out of Italy, of course, there would have been issues through that period. There was a very short window where China stopped exporting glass, um, but that's obviously opened up again pretty quickly and those factories are now fully going. So we have been fortunate that we haven't felt it too badly. And I think the Australian government in particular has realised that, you know, this could get very, very serious if they don't allow exports to come in and imports, or imports in and exports out. And I think that's been okay to date. Um, the supply part has been okay, thank God.
0: How the banks been treating you over this period
2: yeah look good i think um i'm very fortunate i've got a very strong relationship with anz i do all my construction lending through anz and um, some through cba and nav as well they've been good i mean it, you know it's early days though peter as you know i mean the we are very fortunate that we had a large we have a large portfolio with anz we just paid down a very substantial amount of that when we finished two jobs and we actually paid out albert place um in three days and hawke we paid out in one day so that's the kind of stuff that gives them confidence and allows it allows them to be confident and ANZ's position to date and all the banks have been talking to is we're here to help you and we're here to make sure that you get through this strongly and we'll do whatever we can to help now is that going to stay the same forever I very much doubt it because they're going to have to at some point rein in some of the flexibility they've been giving um but for me so far it's been very good I guess what we're seeing though, Peter, probably much more worrying for me and more relevant is the end purchase of retail funding. Yeah, exactly. um, let that. Yeah. So that, without doubt, is getting absolutely smashed. Um, there's no question. I mean, now, if you're a doctor, if you're in medical, if you're in hospitality, if you're in hotels, you know, even if you own a commercial office building, you know, they're not taking into account bonuses and stuff that they used to take into account. Which is very alarming because you you know we had that horrible contraction when the royal commission happened already in terms of lending procedures. I think that went way too far, without doubt, um, and it was just starting to wasn't anywhere near back to what it was. It was just starting to ease, and now they've just clamped it all back down again. And I think the government is you know I don't envy them. It's not an easy time, but they have to be so incredibly careful over the next six to twelve months. I think this September October period when JobKeeper finishes and you know, the bank's sort of leeway or flexibility stops, I think is a very, very important time to
0: watch. Mm. Tell me this, Tim. Uh, how many people in an ordinary year when you've got your normal sort of projects happening, how many people do you think would be employed because of you, either directly by you or through the, the contractors that you um, work with? How many uh, employees would be sort of connected to Gurner projects?
2: Oh, it's thousands. Thousands. So, so is, yeah. it, is it
0: likely then, because of the coronavirus and all the challenges out there, that you're going to be slow to start up new projects because it's just so hard to work out what's going on?
2: Well, Pete, we've had to put two projects on hold. We had a very, very large scale project coming to the market in August, 350 apartments, which would create upfront, you know, if you look at the what development does, I mean, we are 40, property in Victoria is 48% of state revenue, um, and it is a major player, and it is essentially part of the Victorian economy. And, you know, when, when I put a job on hold, architects don't get paid, structural engineers don't get paid, contamination guys don't get paid, let alone the builders and the trades and the flow effect. I mean, the construction industry is terrified by what's going on. I mean, there, there are no big jobs out in the market. There's nothing being tendered and there's nothing coming. And the government's got to be very, very careful. I mean, particularly Victoria, where we are driven by, it's all about construction and property. And, you know, they were talking about, Pre-COVID, you know, stamp duty was down $660 billion because of all those stupid changes they made around foreign purchases in terms of off-the-plan savings. And it's that classic Labor-Liberal argument at the moment of Labor, we're going to tax more, but they don't think about how much quantity's fallen off. I mean, they need to get back to quantity getting up and, you know, off-the-plan stamp duty and foreign stamp duty at the levels it is now, which is at world record highs, it's just got to be the stupidest thing our government could be doing.
0: Tim, if you had to um, um, give some advice to um, the Prime Minister around what you hope will happen uh, as a person who does employ a lot of people directly, what would you like to say? Look,
2: I think the key at the moment is definitely the retail funding. We've got to be really careful we don't clamp down too tight. I understand that the banks have to stay strong and that's a very important part for us. But If they don't let people refinance and let people get through this period where rentals are tougher because the rental market has definitely taken a hit. Um, I think the biggest thing though without doubt is immigration. Like if we if we don't get these students back, I think it's 1.5 million students that we need to get back into our universities, let alone the 400,000 we need every single year. If that doesn't happen and doesn't get reign, you know, reignited heavily by the start of next year, the flow-on effect for the economy would be devastating. Like I you know, we have 150,000 people coming to Melbourne every single year. And that is what allows us to build buildings, to feed jobs, to get the trades going, to keep our unis going, our hospitals going. I mean, if immigration stops, it'll be diabolical. They have to focus on immigration. And immigration.
0: so what have you been seeing on the price front, Tim? Have you been actively, since the, the coronavirus really you know, closed down the economy and locked up the, the people, have you been uh, trying to sell any products and if so, what kind of uh, reaction have you been getting?
2: Yeah, we're kind of fortunate. We've got Victorian Vine, which is 250 apartments. We've only got three left. St. Ruth's, we've only got two left. Atelier and Collingwood, we've got 10 left. Um, that we've still been doing a few sales, but it has definitely, I mean, that, that first two to three weeks of chaos, which we will all never forget ever. I mean, people didn't want to go outside. so. Of course, if they don't want to go outside, the last thing they're thinking about is buying a property, particularly off the plan. So, sales volumes have fallen off a cliff. There's no question. We have seen a big uptick though in the last couple of weeks. Inquiries definitely a lot better. Mm. Uh, it's not back to pre-COVID levels, but I think you know it's going to be. I think until we get through that September to December period where people work out what's really happening, I think the opportunistic investors will buy. But I think people are going to be pretty cautious for a period of time.
0: Before we wind up, I've just got to relive that fantastic smashed avocado story that uh, you got embroiled in. Why don't you just help us relive that wonderful viral experience?
2: I try extremely hard not to relive. (laughs) Thank you. Uh, So it was a funny one. It was not at all what got reported. Um, I mean, obviously, what got reported got a lot of coverage. But I was invited to speak. with, uh, with them about a, the property market. It was me, Triggerboff and Malcolm Turnbull, the current Prime Minister at the time, and they said, you know, we want a bit of an update on the property market. You know, you're the sort of leading Melbourne, we've got Triggerboff in Sydney, and then we've obviously got Prime Minister. And, and there's uh, 60 minutes for talking about? Yeah, I try not to mention their name. <laughs>
0: uh,
2: 60 minutes it was, and, and you know, from our perspective, it was meant to be just a property market update. They came down, we did four and a half hours of interview. He was a lovely guy who did the interview, got on really well. Um, I said to the girls before I started, I said, look, the key thing for me here is I just don't want to look like a wanker, you know, a rich wanker telling people what to do. And that was my exact words. And we got off. We finished the filming for enough hours. I said, oh, how are we going? Um, Ash, who does all our PR? Um said, no, you absolutely know it. It was perfect. It was, it was really, really good. And through the time, he, you know, one of the throwaway questions, you know, it was four and a half hours of interview. One throwaway question was you know, the, the way 60 Minutes set it up, like it was as if we were talking about millennials. It was 45 seconds in the period of four and a half hours. He said, oh, what do you think about the millennials and their spending habits and buying homes? And I said, look, it's incredibly tough. What a shocking situation. The baby boomers have made a fortune. They're gonna come in. It's gonna be very, very hard to buy property. But at the same time, you can't expect a new iPhone, the latest BMW, travel to Italy every single year or Greece every year, buy three coffees a day and smashed avocado for $19. 60 minutes, cut out all the stuff before and focused on the three coffees and smashed avocado. And yeah, it was amazing. It was it, like, well, coming up, as you know, they do that prequel thing on the Sunday night. You, yeah. know, you know, I was watching I know I was watching at the time and this thing came up, you know, millionaire smashes millennials. <laughs> over. Like, what is going on? How is that possibly coming? then I have to sit there for five hours waiting to come on to see how they did it. And it was interesting, it, it it was actually okay at the night. I didn't get that much criticism the night. But then the next day, this lady, Susie O'Brien, who I'll never forget her name ever from the Herald Sun, wrote this headline, Rolled Gold Wanker Smashes Millennials. <laughs> and I posted it on LinkedIn and said, Susie, here's my mobile number. Maybe next time get the facts right before you go and make stories about me giving money. She wrote the article as if I came from a wealthy family and I was given all this money to start... Just the total opposite. I my family was never wealthy at the time. We were a middle class family, and and that LinkedIn post went. I think it was 1.2 million views in about 24 hours, and then we got. I think we had 10,000 media inquiries that week, and we had you know we had media outside the office, outside my home. Um, it was a very very form period, and luckily I was going to going um, overseas on the Thursday, so I got to sneak away from it, but. It was pretty, I mean, it went, you know, we had interviews like there were requests from Washington and London and Ireland and all over the place. And I think it sort of started that conversation about millennials. and, you know, I don't regret anything I said in that interview and I think Mm -hmm. it's still accurate. And I think a lot of people now would think it's probably even more accurate. And I think it is something that this generation have to really watch carefully. But, you know, I obviously got absolutely smashed for it, pardon the pun, but it's um, 99% of people were writing to me incredibly supportive but geez those one percent haters online are pretty full on i know they're terrific the
0: the the tribal tweeting haters they're unbelievable Ah. one last question tim you know um if someone's listening to this and they they have the the desire to to really you know take on the challenges of life and try to not necessarily emulate emulate you but certainly you know pursue their dream what, what advice would you give them
2: I think it's about just attacking something you love. So whatever it is, if that's architecture or design or branding or whatever it is, just get your foot in the door somewhere. You know, I get a lot of letters and emails from people saying, I want to be a developer and I want you to pay me to come in and do it. Like when I started with Mori I said to Mario, I'll work for nothing, I, don't, I just want to learn from you. I think this generation expects everything quickly. I mean, it's not going to come quickly, there's no question. Um, I think it's about getting your foot in the door, working out very quickly in the property sphere because it's it's so wide. You know, you've got you got from sales to construction to design to feasibilities to analytics. It's such a broad part, such a broad industry, which is why I love it so much. And it's about finding your niche and then making sure you're the best at it. I mean, you can't do well without being the top one percent. That's what you have to.
0: Is this if someone's watching this program and they? Are in the position to maybe buy a home um, in the next, say, six months or so? Would you be saying to them, "Look, show up uh, right across this period of time over the next six months, because there could be a fantastic bargain, you know, in your hometown. Because you know there there are a lot of question marks that people don't know the answers to. But but come maybe December, if the economy is bouncing back and people are back in work, there could be a price rebound." Yeah, I think two things. I
2: think firstly, I mean, if you're trying to pick a market within a few months, you're just kidding yourself. Like you're, if you're buying a home, you should be building buying for 10 to 20 years. So I don't think it's overly relevant, particularly if you're selling. If you're selling and buying in the same market, you know, it doesn't really matter if the prices are up or down in that period as long as it's the same market. I think, you know, it's the classic Warren Buffett, you know, do you want to buy when everyone else is buying at the top of the market or do you want to buy when no one's buying so you can try and get a deal? and for us now, we are on a very, very aggressive site acquisition process right now. We're looking harder than we've ever looked because it is a period of a little bit of uncertainty where you might get that slightly better deal. I'm not necessarily sure prices will drop as much as, you know, Chris Joyo, I think is an extremely good analyst as you um, speak to a few times. I mean, he's got a pretty ride over the years and, you know, for me, even if prices, I mean, I reckon prices have dropped five to 10% now, but it's irrelevant because the people that are selling now are not the market. If you're selling now, you need to sell. And there's nowhere near enough volume to tell you what it is. And you know, Melbourne and Sydney went up 10% last year, so a big deal, you're back to where you were last year in June. I think, for me, the most important thing is that we, you know, we've got to get some stability and confidence back in the market. Um, and I think that's going to come. But there's no, there hasn't been a better time to look for property. I mean, if you're a first home buyer or a second home buyer, this is it. You know, I'd be absolutely out there. I'm, I'm looking heavier than we ever had before. Tim Gurna, thanks for joining us on the program. Thanks a lot, Peter.